You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Um, I have a question for you. What comes to your mind when you hear the word religion or religious? Is it a positive thought or is it a, a more negative thought? Um, most of the time, I would say that uh, that word probably generates more often than not sort of a negative response. There's a couple things that you're not supposed to talk about, right? Religion and politics, right? Um, and uh, one theological commentary put a definition like this, that religion is a, is, refers to typically to external ritual acts that display commitment to a god. I think that's up there. I think that's a good definition of religion. The external rituals, the external habits and programs and, um, and actions that we do uh, that display a commitment to something, right? So it's, it's this external outworking of what we think on the inside. So here's, here's what some famous people said about religion. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte says religion is what, is what keeps the poor from murdering the rich. The fact that they think that their God will be mad at them, okay? Abraham Lincoln, here's what he said, when I do good, I feel good. And when I do bad, I feel bad, and that's my religion. That's Abraham Lincoln. Seneca, a Stoic philosopher at the same time of Jesus, actually, says religion is regarded by the common people as true, by the wise as false, and by, and by the rulers as useful. So religion is just a tool. It's just a tool to be used um, in this way or that. Karl Marx says religion is the opium of the people. It's the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world. And, and the wood of our soulless conditions. So a very negative response to religion, that religion is really just a coping device, that if we just got rid of that, maybe we would be much better. So religion is a pretty expansive term. Religion has a lot of things that are encapsulated in it. And uh, that's what James is going to talk about at the end of, of chapter 1. He's going to close out this section. He's opened up a lot of topics. He's thrown a lot of thing at, things at us in, in chapter 1, and now he's sort of landing his introduction and will and we'll begin to unpack these themes again that he's introduced in chapter 1, unpack them again um, throughout the book. Uh, James 1, 26 and 27 is where we'll be, and we're going to talk about true religion before God. True religion before God is the name of our message today. And so here's what James has to say about religion. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Greek word here for religion is threskia. Threskia, I think I'm saying that right. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It's used twice here. Verse 26, anyone who thinks he's religious would put the religious label on him. Yes, I'm a religious guy. And, uh, and then he describes this other kind of religion, the kind of religion that God approves of. But two other places, once in Acts chapter 26, verse 5, Paul is testifying before King Agrippa about his formal, former life and talks about the old religion that he used to be a part of. He uses the word religion there, largely in a negative context of going, this is what I left behind. This is the dead religion I left behind. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, I don't know if this is on the slide or not. I can't remember if I put it on there. There you go. Here's the other place where this word religion is used. And Paul's talking to the Colossian church in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit yourself to regulations, religion? 
Do not, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Okay, so one category of religion is this self-made, I do rituals that really are more about me. He says, they give an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, to put it in James' words, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bear the fruit of true religion, his religion's worthless. So, just like Paul is saying here, it has no value. Has no, those religious, those religious um, practices are dead. They're dead. They don't mean anything to you or to God. They have no value in the world. They have no value to you as the person who's doing them, and certainly God has no appreciation for them at all. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, he's talking about the law, right? You've heard it said this, but I tell you this, right? And what he's saying is that there's really, when he's talking about the law and God's expectations of his people, it wasn't just that they do outward acts, but that they have a transformed heart. And so you apply the law not just to external acts. Well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I guess I'm okay. Well, no, if you've got anger in the heart, then you've still broken God's law. Not interested in just external acts for themselves. Not interested in religion in that sense, but interested in a transformed heart, a transformed life from the inside out. Jesus also talks in Matthew chapter 6 about forms of piety, fasting and giving and praying, these public acts of religion. And he says, if you're just doing those in front of people, you're deceiving yourself and you're deceiving others, right? Just like James 1.26 says, this empty, dead religion. But if you want a true religion, then go and pray in secret. Do it from the heart. Give in secret. Pray in secret. Fast in such a way that you're not trying to get attention because there's a way to self-deceive yourself. So there's really kinds of two kinds of religion. There's sort of the outward, external, self-deceived, worthless kind. And then there's the, James talks about a kind of religion that's internal, flows from the inner life, and is valuable, is precious to God, is meaningful. So, by and large, religion is treated, the word itself, there's some other words for religion as well in the New Testament, it's treated largely negative as external acts disconnected from a transformed heart. And James is really the only one that really uses religion favorably, that there is another category of religion, and this is the outward acts that flow from a transformation deep in the heart that gets to the level of affections, what you love, what you care about, what stirs you, not just merely the outward, but the inward. And Jesus talked about that often. He talks in Matthew 23. Here's what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Whoa, I almost had a woe moment myself right there. Woe to you, Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Here we go. It's up here. So I think speaking again about this contrast between self-deceived religion that's merely outward versus inward religion, he says this to the scribes and Pharisees, which everyone would assume are the captains of religion. Like these are the MVPs. Like this would, these are the guys that you look to if you want to know how to please God. And Jesus shows up and just holds up the mirror to them and goes, you have worthless dead religion. Let me point it out to you because your hearts are not changed. Here it is. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's always a good way to start a conversation. Try that next time. Woe to you, hypocrite. So Jesus is going right after them because their religion isn't just worthless, it's dangerous. Their, their religion is hurting people. 
and they feel justified before God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside also may be clean. So you see what he's saying? The religious external acts must flow from a clean inside. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So again, you see Jesus contrasting true religion and false religion. There is, it is possible to do religious acts, even really good ones, and self-deceive yourselves. Self-deception is possible. You just need to know that, that I could be self-deceived. I could be thinking I'm religious and I'm not. And so James wants to break that down. The inner life must precede the outer life. Your outward acts of faith must be expressions of truth faith on the inside. You cannot transform the inside by merely doing external behavior. You need an act of God in the heart that then flows out, becomes the fountainhead of true religion. And that's what he's talking about. So, um, two kinds of religion. The worthless, self-deceived kind of verse 27 which is most of what the Bible talks about when it talks about religion, at least in the New Testament. It's what Jesus condemns, what James condemns, what Paul condemns. But James also tells us in verse 28, don't be, dis- don't, don't, be, um, don't be discouraged. There is a positive kind. There is a positive time. God's people are to do external acts and rituals, but they're to do it for a different reason, for a different place, and it's the God-affirmed kind. Worthless, self-deceived kind versus the pure, God-affirmed kind. So I want to show just a picture illustration here, which I think will help us uh, to think through how James has structured this. Um, So here we go. Um, I thought this would be helpful. It's helpful to me anyway. So if you go back, James is trying to root all of the things that he's talking about because he's going to talk a lot about external behavior and rituals and how the Christian life bears fruit. He's going to talk a lot about the fruit part, but he has done in James chapter 1 a lot of root work. And he wants us always, as we go through this book, to go back to what he's described in chapter 1, what we've just looked at. So here we go. It's like this. James 1.18 tells us, of his own will, meaning God, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So ultimately, our salvation was because God chose us. God chose to give us birth. By his own will, he brought us forth. Ephesians 1 tells us that he predestined us for adoption before the foundation of the world. So God's choice is the primary one. God planted the seed that would eventually bear fruit. You're a Christian, if you are a Christian, you're a Christian on purpose, according to God's purpose. We call that election, we call that conversion by which God brings someone to life. Think of the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus is dead in the tomb, and Jesus comes up, yells into the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus is dead. But Jesus uttered words that when they hit dead eardrums, now started synapses to start firing in the head of Lazarus, all of a sudden this dead, decaying, squishy heart began to pump. The word itself brought life. God brought us forth by his word. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2 says, but God made us alive. 
So that's what James is talking about here, is that of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. He gave us birth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation, meaning that He's not done with that. He's going to do a whole lot more things. Now, does that mean that we're entirely passive? Well, in terms of us, Him bringing us to life, that's true, but Lazarus also had a command to obey. Lazarus come forth. Lazarus needed to obey that. And now because he was alive by the word being brought to him, he now could obey it, right? And he would obey it. That's how he proves he's alive. James 1.21, Therefore put all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So James is talking about repentance and faith, justification by faith. You need to leave your life of sin and embrace this word that's been preached to you, right? God brought you forth by the word, but you also have a responsibility in that as a newborn person to now believe that to receive that word, repentance and faith. Does that make sense? So this is all stuff that's happening under the surface in the heart. And James is starting here in chapter 1 because he's about to give us some imperatives of how this seed then breaks through the surface, breaks out into the public life of the Christian. Does that make sense? But it has to start with God's work in the heart. God has to make a dead heart alive, and then that, de- that alive heart needs to start to breathe. It needs to exhale, so to speak, sin, repent, get that out of you, And breathe in by faith the grace of God in Christ, right? Receive the implanted word. God implanted it. You're a Christian on purpose, but now you must receive and live by that. Make sense? So now all of a sudden this plant, if it's truly alive, which it is, will start to break through the surface and there'll be some public things you can see. How do you know that a strawberry bush is a strawberry bush? It has strawberries on it, right? I remember when we moved into our house, there was some gardening and landscaping, and we moved in, and we weren't sure what these little bushes were until they started, oh, it's strawberries, right? So what is that Christian fruit that's producing? And James is going to spend so much time talking about the fruit. Like if there's bad fruit, that means this about the root. If there's good fruit, it's because of this in the root. So we must make sure that we're never divorcing. James would never have us divorce fruit and root from each other. Does that make sense? So here's what happens then in James chapter 1:21, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So now we're moving from internal to external. This this tree starting to grow. It's starting to be something you can see. This new birth that's been brought by God that has now been received by repentance and faith is now being to being lived out publicly in a transformed life. There's now sticks and leaves and branches and there's sap flowing through because of response to the word. There's a different kind of life emerging. And then ultimately, as we get to James 27 and 28, religion that is pure and defiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So your strawberry bush now, people can come to a Christian who is, who is living as James describes, and this is what they would taste of the Christian life. It'd be sweet, it'd be satisfying. So what is the fruit of the Christian life that comes out? Does that make sense? So that's what James is doing all that foundation work here in chapter 1. He started with the fruit of joy, right? He started with the fruit of joy, said have joy in trials, and then he works his way down. Let me show you another picture here. He starts with this fruit and works us down. Go to the next slide. Here we go. Sweet. Oh, I wish that was not so blurry. But he's working from the fruit of joy and he's going, hey, you can have joy in trials because you know who you are. You're guaranteed by God which tells you something about what God did for you. He brought you birth. Because of who He is, He gives good and perfect gifts. Does that make sense? So James actually starts talking about the fruit of joy in afflictions, 
and working our way down to the root. Like if this fruit is displaying in your life, it's because this is who God is and this is what He's done for you. This is what has been going on under the surface in your heart, so have joy. And then He's going to go all the way back out and work His way back up to the fruit. The fruit of a controlled tongue, the fruit of care for widows and orphans, and the fruit of being unstained from the world. James is going to do this over and over throughout the book. His work, he's going to talk about the fruit. And what we're going to be tempted to do is to just switch from fruit, like we see bad fruit, to just now focus on true fruit. But we actually need to, when there's unhealthy fruit, go down to the root and work our way back up. Does that make sense to you? In the next chapter, he's going to talk about the bad fruit of partiality. And he's going to work it down and then back up over here. That this is the kind of religion I'm looking for. Does that make sense? I think that's helpful for us to understand, especially as we get to this last verse, because we could just get into do's. There's so many imperatives in James 1 and throughout the book that's just sort of like this. But we have to remember that he talked to us already in chapter 1 that the reason that you live this way, the reason that this kind of fruit needs to be coming out is because you've been born of God, you've repented and believed the gospel, and you're now committed to, passionate about, affectionate about living that word out, not merely hearing it, but doing it. Seeing that seed take root and then begin to grow. And here's the fruits that will be on that tree that people could taste and enjoy and appreciate. And actually, the world is invited to taste our fruit. The world's invited to taste our, tr- our fruit by Jesus. Jesus says, they'll know you're Christians by your love. And they will know that the Father sent the Son by the unity he sees in the church. One of the fruits that the world is supposed to taste is our unity with each other and our love, our love for each other, even our love for our enemies in such a way that they could judge whether or not our profession is true by the fruit they taste. If they bite into a strawberry and it tastes like onions, that'd be awful. I don't like onions. Then they would, have, they would be right to conclude that this is not a strawberry bush, right? If they bite into the Christian community, if they bite into the Christian life, and it's these bad fruits of partiality, division, some of the things that James will talk about, then they're right to conclude that the root is not actually ultimately a Christ-like root. But if they're biting into this fruit and they're tasting love, and unity, joy, patience, a love for the vulnerable, then they will conclude that, yes, this is true religion, and they'll be drawn to it, possibly. They'll also hate it at the same time. It's a complicated thing, but... So those two illustrations, I want you to think fruit to root, root to fruit, and notice how James is going to do that again and again. Now, here we're getting to the fruit part. If you've been born of God, if you've received that word through repentance and faith, if you're now moving from being a hearer to a doer, this tree is budding, it is ready to produce fruit, what will the Christian fruit tree look like? And that brings us to three essential fruits of true religion, okay? So we're just going to look at these three that are in James 1.26. The first one's in the negative. The other two are in the positive. Three essential fruits of true religion. Number one, verse 26, taming the tongue. How the Christian controls himself, a right relationship to himself, is one of the fruits that you can bite into a Christian and go, oh yeah, that's, that's good religion. That's, that's good fruit. Taming the tongue. Remember, James 1.26 says, if anyone thinks he's religious... But does not bridle his tongue, deceives his heart, and this person's religion is worthless. So no matter how pious the person might be, if they're uncontrolled, unbridled in their tongue, not only is it worthless to the world, it's also worthless to him, and he's deceived himself. 
he has used words to convince himself he's okay with God. That's a scary thing. It's a scary thing. The tongue in James is a big deal. The tongue in the book of Proverbs is a big deal. But just in James, we have already seen in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the warning against self-justifying speech. God is tempting me. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we have the warning against flattering the rich and humiliating the poor with our words. Also in chapter 2, verse 16, we have a warning against using our tongue in careless speech about wishing people well but doing nothing for them. I wish you warm and well-fed, and then doing nothing about them? Yeah, don't do that. Chapter 2, verse 18, claiming to have faith with our words, but then not matching it up with deeds? Our tongue is deceiving us. Our good intentions, verbalized, are actually condemning us because we have no intention to do it. It doesn't come from the heart, it's just words. And we actually believe the words, even though we have no intention of doing what we say. Chapter 3, verse 9, James warns against the tongue that praises God but curses people. In chapter 4, verse 11, there's a warning against slandering and judging your brothers. Just being careless with your words and what you say about people. Chapter 4, verse 13, boastful planning. Saying that you're going to do something in a year. And like, you have no idea what you'll do in a year. Be careful. Be careful with your tongue. Because you trick you. You trick you. So... One of the fruits of true religion, of being born of God, receiving this word, living it out, is that we're very careful with our words. God created the world with words, which just tells us how powerful God is, but also how powerful words are. We can create and destroy with the tongue. James is going to talk about that. Look what James says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Is this on the screen? Do I have this? Oh, I don't have this up here. Uh, but you can just flip a page. James 3, 1 and 2 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. <laughs> Because when you're a teacher, you have to say a lot of words. And so you deceive yourself. Boy, I feel this all the time. Most of my regrets over the last few years have been things I've said. Because I say a lot of things. And my heart pours out wickedness and evil, self-justifying, sometimes trying to make a joke. I wound people. I feel this one. I feel this one a lot. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who, are, who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So really, what he's talking about, this idea of taming the tongue, means mastery over yourself. So the tongue is the hardest thing to harness, but it's also meant to be a metaphor of speaking that, hey, if you could control the tongue, you probably can control all your other desires too. So this idea of having mastery over yourself, one of the fruits of true religion is that we begin to have self-control over ourselves. We don't live impulsively. We don't speak impulsively. We're thoughtful. We're careful. And I think we're skeptical of ourselves, right? Because we see this, I could be deceived. I could be deceived into thinking I'm okay and then indulging a desire that actually goes against myself. So one of the fruits of religion is this mastery of self particularly displayed in the taming of the tongue. Second fruit, the second essential fruit of true religion is visiting the vulnerable. So if the first one is taming the tongue, a biblical response to self, a self-control that begins to be demonstrated in the Christian life, the second is a biblical response to the needy, those who have been broken by sin and circumstances, by evil, maybe evil they've done, maybe not. In the case of widows and orphans, it's almost always not anything they have done. They're just victims of a broken world. And true Christian faith 
with that root has a disposition to want to help, to take action to help. Visiting the vulnerable is how I'd put it. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in their affliction, in the hardest point, on the worst day, in the most tragic spot, you can find the Christian there. The word pure there means ritually clean. So this is the kind of, this is the kind of, uh, this is the kind of religion that is just ritually clean. This is like, this is going back to Old Testament, this idea of these sacrifices. You're supposed to bring an animal without blemish. The priests need to go through all kinds of washings so that they can be clean before God. And what James is saying is that this is a ritually, wake, ritually pure way, ritually clean way. And then you have it said again, and undefiled. Undefiled is sort of the negative. It's without fault. God finds nothing wrong with this kind of disposition, this kind of action, right? So it's pure and undefiled before God is this kind of fruit. This is the kind of fruit that God picks off the vine of our lives and bites into it and goes, oh, that's really good and there's nothing wrong with this, right? It's not just that there's some good spots. on. Like this is a pure and undefiled. That's kind of the picture here. And again, this is from the Father's perspective. This, if you're going to be religious, this is the kind of religion that tastes good to God. This is the kind that is like sweet aroma in His nose. Again, this is contrasted with verse 26, man's own self-deceived religion, which is just all talk. This is action that God goes, I love that. The word visit here is not just dropping in to say hi with some well wishes, right? High five. James 2 is actually going to talk about that and how much God hates that. That's not Christian. That's not the Christian faith to just sort of, good luck. Now, the idea of visit here is to bring your whole self and all the resources you have to bring relief and comfort. This idea of visit is, is what Jesus did. Luke 1 talks about this. Uh, Zechariah, as he as he's finally has his tongue loosed, uh, speaks of this, is that the Lord has visited His people, meaning that God is bringing all of His triune attributes in Christ. He's bringing all of His resources, Ephesians 1, all of the blessings are coming in Christ to bear in humans at their very deepest need, at their very lowest level. So as we enter into the Christmas season, I think we're going to spend some time of what does it look like that God visited us? He didn't drop in and say hi, leave us a note. No, He came and He brought all of the resources of heaven to bear on our orphanhood, on our widowhood. Nearness, costly, compassionate, involved, intimate, and intentional. In fact, I guess I have it right here, Luke 1, 67 and 68, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So Christian fruit is those who see the brokenness of sin and visit it, visit it in those who are vulnerable. Now, the widows and orphans, especially back in Bible times, are in a particularly desperate spot. There's no... There's no welfare system. There's no, like, if, and if you're tied to, in a, in a male-dominated culture, if you're not, if you don't have a husband or a father, you're desperate. You're destitute. This is the people that are broken. Often in the Old Testament, it talks about the widow, orphan, and the foreigner because they don't have any position. They don't have any way to provide for themselves. And so this is, this is those who have physical suffering. 
Speaking of this visitation, Matthew 25. Let me point you to Matthew 25. If you've got a Bible, it would be good to turn there just to see this. I'll only read part of it, but Jesus is talking about, um, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats, right? There's going to be people that meet my approval and enter my kingdom, and there's going to be people that I exclude from my kingdom. Here's what he says, Matthew 28, and I'll just read verses 34 through 40. You could read more of it to see more of what the king says. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, this is the category of widows and orphans here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you what? Visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, Truly I say to you, whatever you did, uh, sorry, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. I bit into the fruit of your life, and, you've, and I took it personal. When you visited that widow and orphan, Jesus says, I took that personal. And then what he says to the goats, because those who are excluded from his kingdom, they ask, well, when when did we screw that up? And they said, you neglected to do that for the least of these. I took that personal. God identifies with the widow and the orphan and the foreigner in such a way that the way you treat them, God takes as treating him. Isn't that amazing? This fruit. I bit into the fruit of your life, and it tasted sour. Go off into darkness and destruction, right? And again, this is all the root of their heart. Visiting widows and orphans in their affliction is true religion because it's actually how God saved us. When God looked down on the earth, he saw a bunch of orphans that had run away from their father. Unlike most orphans in here, who maybe through no fault of their own are orphans, We're orphans because we chose to rebel against our God. And God didn't create a ladder for us to climb to Him. He didn't say, hey, once you get it together, maybe I'll consider adopting you. And He came, He was born at the lowest level of society. Lived as a homeless man for the most part, right? Died on the cross. And the Bible calls our salvation adoption. And He calls the relationship that He has with the church like a marriage. No longer widowed, no longer alone, no longer lacking provision. So when we, so the Christian who's having been born of the word, repenting and believing, doing the word, now has this fruit of new eyes by which they look at the orphan and the widow, and they don't see a problem, they don't see a, oh, they don't, what they see is they see themselves. I was like that, and Christ came for me. And I can honor him by doing the same, right? Jesus tells us in, or Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we should have the same mind as Jesus, that though he was equal with God, considered himself nothing, took the form of a servant, 
and died on the cross, that he might be exalted and take a whole bunch of orphans with him, right? Like us, estranged from our Father. What we'll do next week is we'll just camp out on that theme a little bit more because it's a massive theme in the Scriptures of caring for orphans. It's commanded in the Mosaic Law many times. We'll look at a bunch of them. So this was to mark God's people even in the Old Testament. It's celebrated in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Several Psalms and Proverbs celebrate this as a mark of God's people, as a mark of wisdom and intimacy with God. Is this care for orphans? In the prophets, it's condemned in several places when it's neglected. In fact, read Isaiah 1 sometime. In fact, we'll probably do it next week. And this blistering rejection of his people. And you go, you kind of read through it, and your God's like, God's like, I hate your sacrifices. Don't bring any more stuff to me. I don't like your religion. I don't like what's going on. It just goes on and on and on of judgment against them. And you go, what did they do? It's vague, 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 vague. And then it's like, you did not care for widows and orphans. And then he says, though your sins may be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. I will forgive you. And then he goes right back into it again. And the punchline is you did not care for the vulnerable around you. You do not have the root that's producing the fruit that I intended. I planted you in this land to bear fruit, and then you don't bear fruit. When Jesus curses the fig tree in the Gospels because it doesn't have fruit, that's an indictment on this religious system that God planted, and it bore no fruit. And one of the specific proofs is its care for widows and orphans. Also, we're going to see next week that widows and orphans are prioritized by Jesus. It's a priority of the apostles, Acts 6. The care for orphans becomes a major church issue. It's prioritized in the early church. If you read about early church and how they transformed the world, they were picking up all the babies that people were dumping in the ditches. They picked them up. All the people with uh, handicaps, disabilities, people who had no value to society and were discarded, the Christians are like, we'll take them. And then eventually they just out, they're gathering up all the people that nobody else cares about. That's a bother and a drain on everybody else. Christians see the image of God and go, that could be redeemed because I've been redeemed. I was the widow. I was the orphan. I was left in the ditch. And God came and grabbed me. And so they did that. And they transformed the Roman Empire (laughs) by being passionate about widows and orphans proclaiming the gospel. And then if you just look down through church history, it's a defining mark of the Christian religion is care for widows and orphans. Who invented hospitals? Christians do that, right? It's the vulnerable. It's the visiting the vulnerable, bringing all of our resources to bear on physical need as a demonstration of what God has done us to meet our spiritual need. The gospel begins to like have real-time effects. A domino effect of a transformed heart then becomes transformation flows out of these people. So we'll spend a couple weeks. I've actually invited Damon from Kids Belong to come share with us a little bit next week as well just so that we can sort of be aware of the massive uh, foster care need in our own city. And then lastly, number three, essential fruit, or third essential fruit of true religion is this, defending the distinction. I struggled with finding the right language because I was going, you see how I alliterated it, taming the tongue, visiting the vulnerable. I just want you to appreciate how much work I put into this. (laughs) Defending the distinction. I also thought about guarding the gospel. I thought about protecting the identity. That didn't fit wasn't a P and a P, but, but this picture of this response to the world, James 1.27, to keep oneself unstained from the world, which means it presumes that God's people are coming into contact with the world, right? If there's a, 
They're not creating their own little commune and separating themselves. No, they're going to be in the world, but as Jesus says, not of the world. So they're engaging the world. They're visiting the orphan, the widow. They're, they're engaged in the world's system, but they're not playing those games. The idea is to keep oneself unstained from the world. You're coming into contact, but you're the one transforming it. It's not conforming itself to you, like Romans 1.12, right? Be transformed, not conformed. It's, it, this is what's so amazing about Christ when he came. One of the amazing things is that there was such a fear of being ritually unclean. Like if someone is sick or unclean and you touch them, you became unclean. What was totally mind-blowing about Jesus was that when he came into contact with something unclean, he made it clean. That's such a different thing. Is that Jesus is coming, and when he comes into contact with unclean things, he doesn't become unclean. No, his cleanness overpowers the uncleanness he comes in contact with. Now, by the Spirit, we can engage in the power of the Spirit. God's people can go into very difficult spots and be unstained, right? We can be unstained. The idea there to keep oneself means that one is already unstained. This is justification when God has declared us righteous in his sight. My friends, if you've trusted in Christ, you are unstained. You are clean. You are washed. And now you have the privilege and the power to now live that out, to be who you are now. You are holy. You are a saint. And now you, by walking in the word, can engage the world and remain unstained. That's good news. Again, the assumption is that one will be in the world, but unstained by it. And the discipline of not letting it stain us. We don't absorb it. We, in, we invest in it, right? We don't allow it to change our nature because our nature has been secured by God. We don't allow it to mark us. We don't become undefiled. And this just made me think of Ephesians chapter 5, where it's talking about husbands loving your wives and serving them, laying your life down for them. And it has this little note in there that talks about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus washes his bride, the church, with the word. I think about that every time when I get up here to preach, is that Jesus is washing you as I preach with the word. So we're going out into the world every week, right? And we're running into all kinds of difficulties and problems. And there's a good chance, there's a good possibility that we could walk in here stained by all of that stuff, whether that's our fault or not. And one of the ways that God keeps us undefiled from the world is we gather together every week. We just never miss it. We never miss it if we can, if we can help it. We give up other things. We don't join the league. We don't go on the trip. We don't, because we've got to be washed this week, right? I need to be washed with the word with my brothers and sisters. It's one of the means by which God washes his bride and keeps it unstained from the world is this time together. Jesus is spiritually washing you, restoring you, even as I preach, which is such a humbling and glorious thing. So three fruits, three essential fruits of true religion. Taming the tongue, a biblical response to the self. Visiting the vulnerable, a biblical response to the needy. And defending the distinction of us in the world a biblical response to the world, in it but not of it. So that leaves us with four questions that I want to close with. Really just following this whole train of thought here is, number one, have you been born of God? Going back to James 1.18. Let's just start from the root and build it up. Have you been born of God? 
Just like Nicodemus came up to Jesus and said, and Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I can't do that. He's like, yeah, that's the point. God does that. He does it by the Spirit. So in a sense, this question is sort of impossible. Either you have been born of God or you haven't. You can't really make it happen, right? But you can pray. And maybe you're looking at your life and going, oh, I want to be born of God. I've never thought of my salvation as being something that he initiated, he started, that he brought forth in me. Again, also think, looking at the root, have you received the word in repentance and faith? James 1.21. Have you received the word with repentance and faith? I am renouncing my way of life and I am embracing this gospel message of Jesus. That he came to me in my affliction. He came to me in my brokenness. He came to me in my sin. He lived a sinless life, undefiled from the world. He died on the death, then all of a sudden stained with sin. My sin was laid on him, and God punished him for my sin. My stains were transferred to him. Expiation is the theological word. I was cleansed of my sins. They were put on Christ, substitutionary atonement. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for you, that in him you might be the righteousness of God. Right? Have you received that by faith? Renounced sin, bowed the knee before this king, and received his death and resurrection for you, for your sin, to make you unstained. If that has happened under the surface in your heart, then the next question is, are you a doer of the word from the heart? Is that seed starting to poke out from under the heart? Is that starting to be like a trunk and tree and leaves? Is that starting to like come out through obedience to the word? Where are you being disobedient to the word? Well, you know what you should do, but you're not doing it from the heart. Are you all talk? You talk a big game, but there's no, like if we looked at your calendar and followed you around, that doesn't look, they don't look religious at all. Well, they look religious, but is it all talk? Am I self-deceived? Number four, is your religion marked by self-control, a growing mastery of yourself, putting to death the sins? Is it marked by compassionate engagement with the needy, or is it sort of like, Kind of like, I'm just going to pretend it's not there, right? right? I'm too, too busy. Too busy. We've got, we've got too many other things going on. Compassion, engagement, and is there evident holiness? Do you live in the world but not of the world? Is there a distinction? You're in the world, but there's a distinct way. Like You, you look different when you're doing your job. You're, there's something different about you. And what I want to remind us, this all goes back to the root. Like we could easily make this a legalistic thing. This is the total opposite of that. James is going the exact opposite direction. No, you've been, you've been born of God, friends. This is how good God is. He came for you. He redeemed you. He gave you his word. His word is living and active in you. It's going to produce fruit, and it's going to produce this. And you don't produce this fruit. I produce this fruit as you walk with me. And if you don't see this fruit, then begin to work that back. Is there things I'm not believing about God? Are there, are, there, are there lies? Are there deceptions that are going on in my heart? Why is this fruit not present and growing? Go back to the root, confess your sins, put your faith in Him, and start doing the Word, right? Let's pray. God, thank you for your gift of grace here. Lord, I, I pray that this would not feel like a... Uh, beating with the stick, (laughs) 
uh, of the things, all the things we should be doing, but a gracious invitation to do what really matters. A gracious invitation to, with your power, not ours, by your will, not ours, by your strength, not ours, do what pleases you. What brings a smile to your face, Lord, I pray that you would make that the very thing we would most love to do. So, Lord, we pray that you would maybe cause some of us to be born of the word today. Maybe others of us, we've just not repented and believed. Lord, give us the faith to repent and believe. Lord, help us to not just walk out of your hearers of the word, having, to, having just survived another sermon and now moving on to the rest of our day, but to be a doer, to scheme together, to think together, to invite our kids and our, our friends to engage. What, what would it look like to engage, to visit a vulnerable person this week, this afternoon, in some way? And God, help preserve us as we engage the world. Help us not to become stained by the world. Help us to have a love for holiness. Help us to continue to confess our sins every Sunday, to just remind ourselves that we need cleansing to keep ourselves unstained. God, thank you that this is a work that you do. We look to you. We trust in you. We pray that you would produce this fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.